Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Open your Bibles to John chapter 11. We were looking at Lazarus last week. We started looking at this, well... We really read the whole thing, the whole account, at least as far as the miracle itself is concerned. I would encourage you to listen to that message if you missed it, because we talked about some pretty important things if you read through that story. I mean, most people remember, in fact, whether you remember, whether you've actually read it or not, most people, not everybody, but most people have heard, if you hear the name Lazarus, you know, even the secular world uses that term to... Talk about somebody that's been, uh, you know, it, they can refer to it as a career or something like that, not necessarily a physical resurrection. But Lazarus is a man who Jesus raised from the dead, did it very famously. And uh, we talked about, for instance, why Jesus waited two days. When he got the message that Lazarus was sick, he waited two days before he went to Bethany. And by the time he got there, of course, Lazarus had been dead four days. Uh, and we did the math, and you know, you quickly realize that Lazarus was dead by the time Jesus got the message, and Jesus was just going to make sure that everybody knew Lazarus was good and dead. He knew he was going to raise him, but this day there would be no argument that he was just sick, just sleep, just mostly dead, right? So, and we talked about his confidence uh, as he was walking to Bethany. You, you know, he got the word. And Jesus, after he waited two days, then he says to his disciples, Jesus and his disciples, by the way, were on the other side of the Jordan, about a day's journey, a little more maybe from Bethany. And uh, then Jesus said, let's go back to Judea. And his, his disciples were like, Master, they were trying to kill you last time you were there. Why do you want to go back? And he expressed, you know, this is when he was talking about, hey, there's 12 hours in a day. I'm not going to re-preach that part, but it's interesting. And it shows you just how confident that Jesus was that nothing was going to happen to him that was outside of God's will. He was going to fulfill his purpose and complete his mission. Uh, therefore, he wasn't afraid of these threats that the Jews had made. And we talked about why Jesus wept when Jesus was there at the tomb with the mourners and the people uh, crying and weeping. And, and he saw, uh, again, the great toll that sin had taken on humanity and on the whole world. All oh, the heartbreaking loss that is suffered every day when loved ones are dying and everything, and so, never mind everything else that's going on that is just bad. And, uh, I believe that that is the, is the main reason. There might be other, you know, did he cry because of their lack of faith? Uh, maybe. Uh, but generally, I think it's just genuine, human, pure, the purest form of human sorrow. He just uh, wept to see how sad and how broken his creation was, right? And we talked about how this miracle was different uh, from the two other resurrections that Jesus performed. You know, he raised two other people from the dead, the son of the widow of Nain and the daughter of Jairus. And uh, the main difference between Lazarus and those two is that Lazarus was dead four days. 
The little girl had just died. The widow of Nain's son was being carried out in a coffin. He hadn't been wrapped or prepared for burial yet. But Lazarus was entombed. He was mummified, put in the tomb, and the stone was there, and he was there four days before Jesus had them roll the stone away. Even, and even then, he was ignoring them. His sisters, Lazarus' sisters, saying, uh, I don't know if this is a good idea, Jesus. It's going to stink. He's been dead four days. But they roll the stone away. He cries out with a loud voice so that everybody could hear if it worked or not. Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. Jesus said, loose him, let him go. And we will pick this up in verse 45. John eleven forty-five. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Excuse me. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. As I mentioned last week, this was the miracle. After everything Jesus did that ruffled the feathers of the Pharisees and the ruling Jews, this was the miracle that finally really set, his, set things into motion that would result in his crucifixion. Here we have this interesting conversation. What are we going to do about this guy? There's no discussion that's recorded anyway about, oh, what's he, is this some kind of trick? What's he really doing? They could see as well as anybody else that Jesus was doing these miracles. What are we going to do? He keeps doing these signs. And if we don't do something, if we don't intervene, he's clearly just going to keep doing signs. And the result is clearly going to be that everybody's going to believe in him. Now, wouldn't that be a great thing? And we, and we can look at us today, right? And Jesus said, if you believe, you'll do the works that I do and greater works. Not just greater works, but the works I do and greater works because I go to my Father. And if we did these things, did these signs, lived like Jesus lived, how many people would come to believe in Jesus? Right? Anyway, they knew that Jesus, if they just let him alone... And let him continue to do the things he did. Everywhere he went, what did he do? He preached, he taught, and he healed. He did other miracles too, and he cast out demons. But everywhere he went, he preached, he taught, and he healed. And now he'd raised somebody from the dead. And they said, what are we going to do? Everybody's going to believe in him. And Caiaphas says, you don't even know what you're talking about. Have you considered that it's better for one man to die rather than the whole nation? Because... Remember what Jesus' disciples thought about the Messiah. They're getting itchy because 
Jesus has not revealed himself to the world as the Messiah, and they know that when he does, that's it for Roman rule. No matter how great the the numbers are of the Roman army compared to those who are living in Judea, the power and leadership of the Messiah will cause them to be destroyed like so many other enemy armies who were superior in number had in the Old Testament. We have several accounts of that. Different kings, different judges going up against a numerically superior force, significantly superior force, and sometimes never even having to fight the battle before God scares them off or simply causes them to turn on one another and destroy one another. And they just knew this is what Jesus is going to do too. Jesus' disciples thought that, his followers thought that, but so did the Pharisees. If the people believe in him, they are going to thrust him into this position of military leadership, and Rome is going to crack down on us. See, they believed everything the disciples believed up to the point where we win. They just think if we start making a... uh, a scene about our Messiah's here and we're following him, then Rome's going to come and what freedom we have. They, had a, they felt like they had a pretty good deal. They would have been happier if God had destroyed Rome and restored them to the, the times uh, that, they re, that they read about when, under King David and King Solomon. But at least the ruling class of Jews had a pretty good deal. They were respected. They walked in, in, in authority. They were well taken care of by the the laity of the Judean population. And so they didn't want anything to disrupt that. And you could say, you can give them a little bit of credit. You know, if if they personally weren't convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, they were concerned for the people. If they throw their enthusiastic support behind Jesus, and what winds up happening is Rome turns on us, that's not good for them. Yeah, it's not good for us, but it's also not good for them. So really, in the long run, it's better if Jesus dies. Because if he doesn't die, we die. We, it, it, many of us die, and we lose what, what autonomy we have. We lose the freedom we have in the synagogue, because now we can meet, we can worship, we can talk about anything we want, as long as it doesn't threaten Rome. But once our beliefs start to threaten the authority that's in, that, that is uh, on the scene now, we will lose the freedom to talk about these things, to worship this way. So it's better for Jesus to die. Isn't it frustrating that nowhere in that conversation do they just openly consider the possibility that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is not just the Savior, but the Son of God? and a representation of God himself, because he had told them this flat out. I mean, he had had clearly expressed it. I mean, he said he existed before Abraham. They knew what he was claiming. The minute he said, before Abraham was, I am, they're reaching for rocks. They're ready to stone him. He had claimed to be God. He had claimed to be the Son of God. He had claimed to be the Messiah, and done all of these signs that had convinced everybody else, and they're not even considering this evidence. They're just saying, wouldn't it be better if one man died? Now, you read these next verses, and John kind of spiritualizes it. You know, let me read 50 again. Nor Nor do you consider it as expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. 
Now this, he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now, John is writing this decades after it happened. So John gets the New Testament, the New Covenant picture and the New Covenant interpretation. He's not wrong, by the way. What... John maybe doesn't make it entirely clear here is that Caiaphas, I believe that God put those words in his mouth, caused them to come out that way. So technically it was a prophecy. That was a God-inspired utterance. It is profitable for one to die for all. Who profits from that? We do, don't we? Is that what Caiaphas meant when he said it? No. No. God meant it one way, when it came, and when, but when it came out of Caiaphas' mouth, Caiaphas is just talking murder, and yet he's still prophesying. And John says, you know, he's not even just dying for the nation. He's dying for the whole world. He's going to bring in the Gentiles as well. So, now, uh, verse uh, 53 there, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Now, let's pick it up in 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went, there, went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there he remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. So, everybody's looking for Jesus. Is he going to show up for the Passover? Is he going to come? Everybody knew that there was this threat. We'll read of the specifics of that. I don't know if we'll uh, read it tonight. Well, I mean, one version of it's right here. The, the, chiefs, uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees given a command. If anybody knows where he is, let us know uh, so we can get him. Uh, but we know Jesus is going to come back for this Passover. It's during that Passover that he institutes the Last Supper, right? The night he was betrayed. And uh, let, let's read this next bit. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I really want to get to the, the, the piece after that and then wrap this up. But this is, a, this is a nice, it's a beautiful little story that it deserves a sermon on its own. I'm just not going to preach it tonight. Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been raised from the dead. I'm sorry, who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There, they made him uh, a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Uh, but Jesus said, let her alone. She has, uh, she has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now, there's a couple things that are worth pointing out in here. Number one, 300 denarii. That's about a year's wages for 
lower middle class, maybe even a, a poor person, okay? But a, a, denari, a denarius was a, tip, a, a laborer's day wages. And so 300 days wages, uh, and so that's a pretty significant sum of money. And she comes and she dumps it on Jesus' feet, wipes his feet with her hair, and here's Judas, the treasurer, looking on saying, what a waste. We could have sold that and fed a lot of poor people. And John says that's not really what his concern. Concern was that left him 300 fewer denarii to embezzle. That's what he was about. The more money's in the bag, the less people are going to miss what I take. Not only that, look at Jesus' response. Let her alone. She's done this. She's prepared me for my burial. You're always going to have the poor with you. But you're not always going to have the opportunity to do something like this. Does that strike anybody as a little bit cold-hearted? Yeah, this is the same Jesus. Sell what you have. Give it to the poor. But, hey, if you want to dump a year's worth of uh, salary on my feet, that's cool. That's cool. Poor don't need, need your help that much. Now, what he's saying is... Uh, This always comes up when people want to talk about the quote-unquote prosperity gospel. I I use air quotes because that's a loaded term these days. You know, when I first was exposed to the teachings that that formed the basis of the prosperity gospel, prosperity wasn't a dirty word back then. We used to sing songs that included that word. All right? There is no getting around the biblical doctrine that God delights in prospering his people. He absolutely does. He has, you know, we, we put a lot of stock in the fact that, G, that God has, has named, one of the names he gives himself, one of the ways he identifies himself is uh, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals you. But he also says, I'm Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, okay? And God provides abundantly. This is Old Testament, this is New Testament. Uh, but God clearly, Old and New Testament, has a deep concern for economic justice, The poor are always near and dear to his heart, especially if people are poor, if they are innocent victims of exploitation by the rich, which was a very common condition, Old Testament and New Testament. In God's economy, though, if the people tithed, the poor were taken care of. If everybody tithed. So why were there still poor people in the Old Testament? Because the people were robbing God. This was what, one of the things that Malachi's prophecy was about. Will a man rob God? Will a man rob God? How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're not taking care of me, and therefore the people aren't taken care of. So when people say, well, I have a real problem with uh, this, I think, well, I can't remember which, if it was last podcast. Well, the last one was with Keith Hershey. I think it was the one before that we were kicking this around. I guess there's some website that some guy, he was just a shoe fan. You know, there's a whole deal. It's like a whole new world. People buying and selling shoes like commodities now. They'll buy a pair of tennis shoes for $300, hold on to them for two years, and sell them for $2,000. Uh, it's amazing. And so people, they're these status symbols, two, $3,000. We're talking tennis shoes, all right? So anyway, there's a celebrity preacher, and he's a celebrity preacher, and he also has a lot of actual celebrities in his congregation, so there's a lot of money going through there, and somebody in his congregation gifted him with a pair of these shoes, and this guy started this website of preachers wearing cool shoes, not as a criticism, but a lot of the people commenting on it were like, oh, 
This is, God, this is such an affront to God. Why would anybody wear shoes that cost $2,000? And then you hear it, why would so-and-so, why would this preacher drive a car that's worth $100,000 when the, you know there are hungry people in his church? Why can't he drive a $30,000 car and give $70,000 to feed the poor? You know what's wrong with this, with this uh, whole equation? What's wrong with it is if everybody, you take the top 1%, and if they emptied all of their resources and spread it evenly among everybody in the world, they would not alleviate poverty. You know that, don't you? I'm not talking about all the natural resources of the world. I'm talking about privately owned property and money. If they shared everything evenly, you would still have poor people. And not only that, a lot of this money would find its way right back into the hands of those people because they know how to manage it. They know how to accumulate it. They're following certain principles. Jesus said, you'll always have the poor with you. If she had sold this spikenard, and if they had distributed it to the poor, they would not have, they would not have wiped out poverty in Judea, they would not have wiped out poverty in Bethany, for that matter. There were always going to be poor people. And there are reasons for that that Jesus doesn't go into. He's simple. But here's what I love about that. It's what's beautiful about the tithe. He doesn't say how much you can have. He said, but you just remember that 10% is mine. And you'll be blessed. Now, listen to my voice. Because if I ask you to give something special... If you see an opportunity, that's why like the New Testament version of this, you know, give, as you've been, give as you purpose in your heart. But God is able to make all grace abound to you in all things that you always have an abundance for every good work. So that means you tithe, you tithe, you tithe. You faithfully tithe to your church. And then when another need, maybe a guest speaker, a missionary, or something else you're aware of comes along, you also have an abundance for that. Okay? You bless over and above. So, <coughs> excuse me. So Jesus is saying, let's, let, we, let's don't worship the idea of, of uh, giving money to the poor. They'll always be there, and you'll always have an obligation to help them. But I'm the Lord here, and I'm getting ready to die for everybody, and she's done a beautiful thing that's going to be talked about. Let's, uh, let's move on here. Now, uh, verse 9. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to, dead, to death also. That blows me away. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. I, I just shake my head every time I read this passage. Because they've already talked about what a huge following Jesus has. And they know he's just going to keep on doing these great works, so they decide let's just kill him, be done with it. But now they've got another problem. His greatest miracle has just happened. You know, the greatest, uh, you know, in, in, in a lot of people's minds anyway. I mean, he just raised this guy from the dead. And a lot of people were there. He prayed out loud for the sake of the people who were there, the mourners. And then he cried out in a loud voice, 
Lazarus, come forth. They knew it was Lazarus, and they knew he was dead. And a lot of people are now believing. Hey, did you hear about this guy? They were coming to hear Jesus and to see Lazarus. That's him. That's the guy who was dead. And seeing Lazarus, and I'm sure talking to Lazarus, many came to believe in Jesus. And so what do the Pharisees decide to do? Let's kill Lazarus too. This is, this is like the mob. Hey, these guys, they're, they're threatening our interests. Take them out. And so they're going to kill Lazarus. And this is, again, we don't have a biblical record of this. But there's a very strong t- tradition that at some point Lazarus went to Cyprus and, uh, and began to uh, share the gospel there. And that Paul and Barnabas visited him and actually made him officially a church leader there. Uh, there's there's a, uh, also uh, some evidence that he spent time in France, possibly martyred there. But we do know he was martyred. He was beheaded. His head was in one place for a while while the rest of his body was in another. Uh, Lazarus was faithful. Here's the point that I want to make if there's an application there for us, is that when God does anything for you, when he works a miracle in your life of any degree, of any type, he expects you and he deserves from you a witness, a confession. You need to share that. When he raised Lazarus, you know, when he raised Jairus' daughter, Do you remember what he said then? Don't tell anybody about this. Now why? Timing? I don't know. I've made the case before that I always always try to compare that miracle to when he healed the centurion's servant. And he didn't even have to go to the centurion's house. He said, yes, speak a word. My servant will be fine. And Jesus said, that's faith. That's the kind of faith I want everybody to see. But faith that requires Jesus to be on the scene to receive a healing or anything. Jesus will still do it, but he's like, I want you to get in the habit of just responding to my word. Well, here's Lazarus who's going to respond to his word even though he's dead. All right? Jesus gets to call the shots anyway, all right? But here's, here's the thing. He does this miracle... Everybody knows it, including the Pharisees. And they still, just because it's causing people to believe in Jesus, that's all they care about, so let's kill Lazarus. Let's kill Lazarus. Let's, let's kill the cause of the miracle. Let's kill the recipient of the miracle. If you have been the recipient of the miracle, what are you going to do to cause people to believe in Jesus? I guess that's the simple question. Has Jesus done anything for you? Anything. I'm not going to ask for testimonies right now. I just want to see a show of hands. Has Jesus ever done anything for you? All right. If he has done anything for you, it is worth talking about. Now, what might happen if you talk about it? Well, some people might be offended. Some people might turn on you or from you. But some people might believe. What are you willing to risk since Jesus did something for you? Here's the thing. I'm going to skip ahead because this, I I want you to see this next tiny little passage 
in the context of what we just read. Skip ahead in chapter 12 to verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, these are the Jews that we've been talking about that Jesus has been butting heads with. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. Now, we know that there were those among the rulers who believed in Jesus. Nicodemus was one of them. Uh, And it doesn't tell us if it's talking about Nicodemus here. It just tells us that there were among the rulers those who believed in him but didn't confess him. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think they were saved? Because Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Confession is one of the core components of salvation. You have to say. You have to do something. You know, baptism, water baptism is a form of confession. You can't, you know, there's, scripturally speaking, there's no such thing as a private baptism. Yeah. I read the story, started reading the story of some woman who, who she, one of these great stories of uh, uh, somebody in a Muslim country who gets saved, meeting, meets Jesus in a dream because she passionately wanted to know. You've heard some of these stories, haven't you? They're happening more and more, by the way. You hear Ravi Zacharias talking about these. You've got honest-seeking uh, people in Muslim countries who are just like, God, I, want, I just want to know who you are, whoever you are. And Jesus comes to them in a dream. And they're converted because of a one-on-one encounter with Jesus Christ himself. Well, this woman had this, and there was nobody around to teach her or pastor her for a while. She had a bootleg copy of the Bible. When she read about baptism, she knew she needed to be baptized, so she filled her tub up and sat in it and baptized herself, <laughs> which, which is not exactly scriptural because you're supposed to be baptized by somebody, but she was passionate about it. Anyway, our confession, our, we make a confession unto salvation. These people believed because how could you not? They had seen with their own eyes, they had heard with their own ears, and they've heard the the testimony of all these people. They have met people who have been touched by Jesus. So they believed because they were rational men. They're not going to try to deny something that's obviously true. But what was really important to them? Their position as leaders in the synagogue. So they didn't confess him. And if you don't confess him when you have the opportunity... You are denying him. Jesus said, you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. We really do need to take that to heart. Now, I'm not a legalist. I don't want to say, well, I can remember one time when I was 15 years old when I didn't raise my hand or I didn't pipe up. Does that mean I'm doomed? No, it doesn't. Where is your heart? Have you, have you taken the opportunity to confess? who your Lord is, and what he has done for you. I'll tell you, I'll share one quick, just one of many opportunities I, I had to share after my second uh, back episode, after I had been uh, off my feet for a number of weeks, racked with pain, crippled, 
uh, terrible. You, most of you know the story. I'm not going to tell the whole thing. I'll just say that when I got my healing, as most of you know, it was a very sudden thing. It didn't happen soon enough, but when it happened, it happened all at once, and it was glorious, and I, I, was, I would just weep, you know, in the, just at the goodness of God and just how clear it was that this was a miraculous healing. And when I showed back up, I was still working a couple, uh, two nights a week at Sam's Club, and I went in there, uh, you know, started getting on a forklift, and this guy, it was kind of a rough crowd, and this guy, I didn't know him, I, you know, I knew him, I didn't even know his name. I knew, I knew him by face and everything. He worked in kind of a different department, but we were kind of driving back there together. He goes, you haven't been here in a while, have you? I said, no, I haven't. What's the deal? I said, my back. I said, I just had a terrible, terrible uh, sciatic episode, and I couldn't walk. And it's interesting, when I look back on this conversation, that it didn't end there. Maybe he would have, just, that maybe he would have said, well, glad you're back or whatever. He said, how did you fix it? How did you get better? And there was no way I was going to not tell him how I got better. It was too important to me. So I said, you know what? I said, I don't know anything about you. I don't know how you're going to take this, but it doesn't matter. I believe God healed me. He stops. He shuts his machine off. He gets out and he says, I believe you. I believe you. I think God does things like that. Don't you? I said, well, of course I do. He healed me. And we start talking about this. He had been watching some programs that had gotten his attention. And this is, again, I didn't really know him. I was, I was maybe just kind of lumping him in with a couple other guys I did know. didn't think he had the slightest interest. I really thought that once I mentioned God, he was going to go, huh, yeah, cool, whatever, and drive off. Instead, he had questions about some of the things he'd been reading and seeing on TV, and I got to share the gospel with the guy. Take these opportunities, Right? And that's a, that is a case of confessing what you know to be true. All right? You can't just say, well, I believe it in my heart of hearts, and God knows that, so everything's cool. You have to share it. You have to share it. For Jesus' sake and for the sake of those who need to hear it. Amen? Stand up. Can't share what you don't have. Can't preach what you don't believe. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that God has raised him from the dead? Amen. If you don't, or if you, well, if you've never made that confession of faith, do that now. You can become a Christian starting now. And once you're a believer, then you spend some time in the Word. Spend some time with other believers. Spend some time in church learning what everything, really ultimately what we're learning is about so much is what went in to saving us what it costs God and what, being, what we're going to get into next, by the way. I'm very excited about this. I know some of you are too. We're going we're to study the book of Ephesians, which really opens up a lot of the richness of our salvation. Now that we are saved, what does that mean? What glories can we participate in and experience as a result of that? Ephesians is a book about Christian maturity. Uh, so we can begin to appreciate that. But it starts with a decision. If you've never made that decision to make Jesus Christ your Lord, invite him to be the king of your life. I encourage you to make that decision tonight. I'm going to pray a prayer. Then we're going to close uh, with a song. As soon as I'm done praying, we start singing. You want to give your life to Jesus? Come up here and let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. 
Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.